Welcome to Campaign Chemistry, a new podcast from Campaign US where we pick the brains of creative alchemists, business wizards, and marketing geniuses behind the world's greatest brands. My guest this week is Keith Cartwright, a legendary creative who launched his own agency, Cartwright, in June last year, right in the middle of a global pandemic. As part of WPP, Cartwright structures client relationships around senior talent and taps into Gray's global network to scale up on accounts. Keith is also one of the founders of Saturday Morning, a nonprofit that aims to shift society's perceptions on racial bias against the Black community. Saturday Morning creates work like The Look, an iconic piece of creative for Procter & Gamble that addresses the very real biases Black people in America face when they simply walk into a room. Hey, Keith, how's it going? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Um, so you launched Cartwright last year in the middle of a global pandemic. What was that like? Scary. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, I, I think it was um, there was so much uncertainty already going on in, in the in the world. And then the business world started to collapse. And here I am trying to start a company um, that's all about you know marketing and advertising um, while companies are are shutting their doors and closing down their books for short periods of time. But I think what it taught me was, um, uh, you know, essentially how to be resilient and nimble. And, and I think we were pretty fortunate because we were able to kind of rethink what our process is. And, you know, the further out we get from, um, you know, the moment last year that changed the world, uh, the more appreciative I am that we are we're able to build a process in what's becoming the new paradigm in marketing and and essentially just business and, and the way we work and how we collaborate and how we work together with our clients. Yeah. So so I'm assuming, you know, you had these plans before the pandemic hit. Did you ever rethink like, is this the right time to launch? You know, no. Mm-hmm. I, I think we were already in. We were too far in <laughs> at that point. Yeah. And it was um it was about how do I survive and keep this thing moving and keep everyone optimistic despite what's going on. And very quickly, I'd say within, you know, a few weeks, a few clients, a few key clients reached out and um things started to move. Hmm. Interesting. So I know um, when you left 72 and Sunny and you started this new agency, you had a very kind of specific goal in mind, and and that was to, you know, structure the agency in a way that clients could work more closely with senior talent, which I think is a lot of – doesn't happen a lot in the big agencies. Um, Senior talent sort of just comes in for the pitch, and then you might never see them again. So talk about that and, and why you wanted to create something like that. Yeah, you know, I having worked in the business for you know over twenty years, I I recognized a few things. I recognized that it's really no matter how big the agency, it's really a core group of individuals, uh, a small core group of individuals who get the work done, and everyone else they fall in as support, but it's that core group who really figures it out. I also realized that the best work, um, you know, is from also a small core group of individuals. And I I felt like if I could create an agency with top level professionals who, you know, sort of believe in 
you know, creativity and the core idea of, of, of how to um, help a company through marketing and through innovation and creativity. If I could build that group of uh, individuals and keep them close to the client without, you know, essentially uh, burning them out or, or, or creating a model that would collapse because it was unable to scale, um, I might have something. And the way that I, the way that I figured out that I think is working is to create a core group of leaders that could partner and expand with people within the WPP network when necessary. Um, so we stay essentially, you know, this, this sort of nimble agency. Uh, but if we get directives from our clients whereby they need either more resources or uh, global resources, I can reach within the network and pull those people in. And then when that part of the assignment is over, release those people and get back to, you know, a, 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 essentially a, a core relationship um, with the executive leaders within my team. So that's worked. And I think our clients have been really appreciative of, you know, the, this model because they have the ability to talk to the people who are making the decisions, but at the same time feel like they have the support of a larger network. Mm. So it's an interesting sort of um, holding company relationship. You know, you're not part of WPP, but you're sort of affiliated with them. Talk about um, how that relationship is structured so that it works and like how much autonomy you have as mm -hmm. Cartwright when you do sort of lean on that network. Yeah. I mean, we are a WPP agency. Don't get it wrong. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, you know, we are. Um, but I think the, because of the way that I built this company, we have developed a certain level of autonomy um, whereby you wouldn't normally find with a holding company agency relationship. You know, I think I think we've put in place some agreements and there are certain things that are working that they don't want to mess with where we you know, behave like an independent agency. Um, you know, our ability to make decisions on who we pitch, our ability to make decisions on who we hire and, and how we function and our process. Uh, but also, you know, really appreciating the support that a network can give you, um, you know, which is essentially really, really important when it comes to some of the, the finite details of, of um, you know, running an agency. How is, um, I guess, like in terms of when you do, you know, decide which, which clients you want to pitch for and, um, what what sort of relationships do you go after? You talk a lot mm -hmm. about audacious work. What does mm -hmm. that mean um, yeah. in practice? You know, it's a good litmus test for us because I think we go in. You know, I learned a long time ago if you if you don't go in with a real specific point of view on the, the kind of work that you want to make and the kind of things that your your agency is gifted and talented at, um, the relationship is going to fall apart at some point and. I, I wanted to make sure that we went and let every single person that we spoke to in creds meetings know, this is what we do. This is what we want to do for you. If you're not interested in that, that's okay. Um, you know, let's, you know, stay close. Maybe at some point you will. Um, but, but creative audacity is a point of view on a type of creativity that we think is critical in this day and age. We live in an attention economy. And it's really, really hard to get people to focus on your ad or your marketing idea. And so 
how do you cut through where there's so much clutter in the marketplace? And there's a certain type of creativity that's necessary to do that. And we call it creative audacity. It's the kind of creativity that forces you to pay attention. It, it entices you and it, it, it asks you um, to want more. And, and, it, and it actually forces you to share because you are so enthralled by what it is that you want to have a conversation about it with others, people in your social circles. If we can make that kind of work, we, we're on to something. And that gives us the ability to cut through the clutter. So give me an example. Um, what are some campaigns you've worked on in the past year that you feel like really fit this model? I, I think the work we did for the NBA, uh, which is one of the first things we did, is a really good example of that kind of work. Um, you know, the NBA was already making a lot of news as being one of the first leagues to shut down um, in, in sports. And, you know, they were struggling trying to figure out how to start back up. And when they came to us and talked to us about it, the first thought was maybe we should just talk about the excitement of the game and how everything is going to essentially be as exciting and, um, you know, enthralling as it was. But we didn't find that to be the lead story, the most interesting thing to bring people in. The thing that was most interesting and most enticing was that it was going to be different. It was going to be very different. You know, players are living in a bubble. Um, you have to reinvent the stadium. You have to rethink camera angles and the way you broadcast the game. Um, you know, you have to reinvent ways for people to sort of engage and talk about what's going on on the court from players to fans to announcers. So with all that in mind, it was a whole new game. And inviting people to watch something that's new, but also reminding them that the things that they love, those familiar things are still there, what we thought would be an exciting way to, to talk about uh, the reopening of the NBA. And it turned out to work. Um, and it really lit up not just the NBA, but other sports leagues to sort of think about and reconsider how they were going to open up. And sort of leaning into all the new innovations and technologies that were necessary in order for them to continue to operate as a business. That worked its way through social. It worked its way outside with their co-sponsors. It worked its way into pop culture. And by us sort of going, pushing against the grain and finding this sort of new and interesting white space and taking that risk, we knew that, and, and by leaning into the fact that we're in the middle of a pandemic, to some might have felt audacious and, and a bit nuts, but it turned out to be exactly what everyone wanted and what everyone wanted to talk about. Um, so that that's a that's a that's a good example of of you know something that we've done that really embodies the idea of creative audacity. Yeah, how do you get to those insights? Like, where do you find those sort of controversial? Um you know, white space ideas? Like, do you have a process for that? Or is that just sort of like ingrained in your creative style? Mm -hmm. No, I mean, we, it all starts with good strategy. I, I think we have, I think one of the strongest things we have is our strategy department. And we spend a lot of time scrutinizing and discussing what the strategy is that's going to get us to that creative idea. And how is it going to light up the creative team to come up with something interesting? Um, and I think we've we we beat ourselves up trying to make sure of that it that it has that insight. 
um, you know, and the best insights lead to the best creative work. So that's where we spend a lot of our time because once if once you get that right, creativity becomes a lot easier. It's not easy, but it becomes a lot easier. You know when you haven't hit that insight when it's hard to develop ideas or the creatives are struggling or you end up uh, coming up with something that's in turn not not that interesting and new. And then we start over until we find it. Mm-hmm. Um, so you talk about, you know, strategy is obviously a key component here. Do you have, um, what what's the structure of, of the agency? Do you have like mostly strategists on the team? I know you try to keep it as a lean team. So what functions do you have internally? And then where do you sort of tap into the bigger network? Yeah. I mean, we have all, we have all the, I call them big four, you know, production strategy, uh, creative and, and account management. We call it brand. Um, and we have, you know, great, great teammates on each and every team. We, we do double down on creative. Um, that's our biggest department, um, probably because I'm a creative. So I'm, I'm investing heavily there first. <laughs> but it's, um, but it, that's not to say that our other departments aren't, aren't fairly robust and, and we've been very picky about who we bring in just based on their experience or the way that they look at the business. Mm-hmm. And um, I know the agency has sort of been on a bit of a tear since it launched with with new clients. Talk a little bit about that and how you've mm-hmm. been able to keep momentum um, during this year where everything has just been so strange and different. You know, and I'm, I'm not trying to be overly humble here. I, I cannot figure it out. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I think we have been um, we've been really fortunate to have. Um, people referring us, um, you know, out of the blue phone calls. Um, I, I think we've, we've engaged with so many different clients and sometimes it's just engagement, you know, sometimes it's, Hey, we just want to meet you. Um, but we've are, are in the past year, the number of clients that we've actually worked with is astounding. If someone would have asked me at the beginning of starting this thing, um, you know, how many clients did you expect to be working with in a year? I, I would have, I would have said it less than half as many as we're working with now. So I, I wish I had an answer for you. I, I, I do think we do a really good job when we introduce ourselves, introducing this model. Um, and I think people are really excited about it and they think that it's, it feels new and it feels right for them. The, the other part of it that I think is getting, um, the folks that we interact really excited is my perspective on diverse talent and mm-hmm. the importance of diverse talent in the make, right? It's not a nice to have. It actually makes the work better. It, it enhances the creativity when you have people of different gender and race sitting at the table with you discussing ideas because they're going to bring about different perspectives that you wouldn't have in sort of a monolithic agency, right? Mm-hmm. So that was something else I've noticed in my 20 plus years is, you know, when you work, I mean, being, being I used to call myself the only lonely um, at the agency, you recognize that there are a lot of things that are just missed because my experience as, a, as an African-American um, in a lot of ways is very similar, but in a lot of ways is very different than a lot of people that I, I've worked with in my, in my career. And I can't teach that, right? Mm-hmm. That's just 
my that's my reality and that's my truth so if people are sitting at the table who don't get that my creative ideas won't resonate with them and therefore it won't go out into the world but if you have people from all walks of life sitting at the table my truth and their truth is going to going to come together and we're going to hopefully find something that speaks to this very diverse country that we live in um and and that ends up you know, it drives the bottom line, right? It's not just a nice to have. Um, when you make that kind of work, um, people see it from different walks of life and they, they identify with it and therefore they identify with the company. And that does, that does good for them. It helps them. And, and like I was saying, it, it, it drives the bottom line. So I've, I've scratched my head and not understood why agencies have had such a hard time figuring this one out, but I'm going to, I'm going to figure it out on my end and take advantage of it for as long as I can, because for me, it's a no brainer. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think you are right that people are very um, attracted to your agency because of this and because of your unique perspective on this issue um, in the business. And I want to talk about um, Saturday morning a bit, but first talk to me about how you are thinking about diversity and diverse talent at Cartwright especially since you do have, you know, a senior team there. Like, how are you um, making sure that team is diverse? Yeah. I mean, right now we are um, looking at our makeup every single time we hire and making sure that we are representative of, you know, all walks of life as best we can based on the talent that we find. And, we are paying, we are recognizing the fact, like I was saying earlier, that your experiences are, it's, it's impossible to put that on a resume or on LinkedIn, right? Um, where you're from, your gender, your ethnicity, those things bring about different perspectives that uh, a resume just can't hold, right? So we value that. We over-index on that because we know that that's going to be incredibly valuable to us as an agency as a whole. Um, so, you know, our, our agency right now, um, it's, it's over 60% female and the majority of our agency are people of color. And I don't even think about that. And I, I would, I would question if anyone who works with us thinks about that because we don't make a point of it as we, when we're working, but we, we do want to make sure that it's, it's prevalent when we're hiring. And it's a, it is a point of conversation based on all the things that I've described. Right. So given your sort of perspective on this, talk about um, where the industry is at. Obviously, this past year has been such a reckoning for, for this country. Um, and you've been doing, um, you know, you've been part of Saturday morning for um, a long time. Talk about that and, and what you guys are trying to do there. You know, I, I it, it, it's one of these things we fell into purely based on on um, a lack of representation in our industry, um, and I think a lack of a creative voice from African American uh, creative marketing minds stepping up and saying something about what was going on in the world. We just saw that void, right? And myself and Janta Jenkins and Jeff Edwards and Kwame Taylor Hayford um, all got together to build this thing because we felt like 
our unique gifts might be able to make a dent in shifting people's perception of African-American and Black people in this country um, based on how we're perceived and, and really speak to, you know, the, the sort of dehumanization of Black people in this country and, you know, shine a light on the fact that this is, this is something that is not only biased and racist, but just, just pure and simply wrong and can't be stood for. You know, when we made the, um, the look, when we created that, that piece of work, um, you know, we intentionally wanted to do something that, um, that didn't have dialogue because we felt like it was that simple. Um, it was, it was that important to us to create something that no matter where you're from, no matter what language you speak, you'd get it and understand that bias can come in something as simple as a look or an expression thrown across the room. Yeah. And that's something that, you know, only someone who's experienced that bias would understand. Right. Um, and, and think to make, and the look has to be one of the best pieces of work focused on the realities faced by black people that, that I've ever seen. Um, but you know, it brands these days, they have to sort of walk a fine line when they, when they take a position on, uh, you know, brand purpose, mm -hmm. race, all these things. P&G obviously has a very strong, which, which is the client that you made this um, right. film for, which is all about, you know, the, the look that people get when they're faced with bias in a room. Mm -hmm. um, but how can brands, you know, authentically take positions like this if, if they don't have sort of the pedigree of, of Procter and Gamble in this space? You know, I think, um, Mark Pritchard, who's the CMO of Procter & Gamble, um, made a very conscious decision to um, work his way into this level of authority. And he did it slowly. You know, he's been working at this for a number of years and he's made mistakes. He's admittedly made, made mistakes and learned from those mistakes and been very open and course corrected and got to a point where now he's looked at as sort of the gold standard for brands in how to speak uh, on behalf of, of, of race and equity and equality. And I think other brands who want to just jump in, and we get a lot of these phone calls uh, for brands who feel like they want to say something or they want to do more. Uh, what I say to them is, you know, what have you done to this point? And, I'm, and that's not in an accusatory way. It's, it's really us trying to protect them. Uh, because the biggest mistake you can make is to jump out and say something as bold as the look when you as an organization either haven't done anything to to really support the cause up until that point or do it in a way. The worst thing you could do is do it in a way where it's not emblematic of who you are as a business or a company or an organization. So you, you, it has to come from your DNA. Right. So when brands understand that, the first thing we do is we sit down and we talk to them about. Uh, their brand purpose, who they are, their mission as a company. And then we, we talk about the journey that we feel they need to take to get to something like the look, right? Um, and there's a lot of ways to get there. Um, you know, it, it, it can start with setting up foundations and organizations. We generally say to them, think about the action you want to take, 
before you think about the awareness that you want to put out, right? Because you can always go back and and build out the action as you're thinking about the awareness, and that'll help sort of substantiate um, and 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 essentially um, give credence to the fact that you really mean it, right? So, you know, as we work on that journey for them, sometimes clients say, "Well, we, we're not." We're not interested in taking that journey. We just want something now. <laughs> and we back out because we don't want to, you know, set these clients up to do something that we know um, isn't going to get the results that they want. And then there are times, obviously, when clients do want to take that journey. We're taking that journey with a lot of clients right now. Mm. Would you say there's more clients that, refuse to do what the work to take the journey and they want fast results or there's more clients that actually want to do the work? There's, there's more clients that want to do the work, but um, want to skip steps yeah. to get there. Right. And, you know, I, I'd say we've, we haven't really um, gotten to a point yet. Well, it's not true. There's, there's a couple of clients that we politely walked away. Mm-hmm. Um, because we just didn't didn't feel like we were um, on the same page, um, but for the most part, it's it's a struggle, it's a fight, and and you don't know what you don't know, right? This is very new, unfortunately, for a lot of brands. So you know, I think we're getting better at explaining why they shouldn't do that, and I think clients are, um, as they see other brands doing it right, are are starting to understand why it it takes time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so I'm curious how you sort of balance the work you do at Cartwright with the work at Saturday morning. I know mm-hmm. they're, they're sort of separate um, organizations and um, different, different sort of go to markets, but I think mm-hmm. there is some kind of alignment there, but how do you sort of differentiate? Yeah, that's a good question. I, you know, there's, it, it's pretty easy for me Um you know, things dealing specifically with racial bias um, in and around the African 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 American community, um, black community. I I I push a Saturday morning if I get those phone calls um, and just say you're going to get a better um, experience and more in depth um, sort of practice with Saturday morning to get to your goals than you would at Cartwright. Uh, not that we couldn't do it at Cartwright, but you know what I wouldn't want to do is cannibalize our nonprofit um, because I think that mission is so pure and so clear. Mm-hmm. It's better if it comes from, and it's better for the business because having an affiliation with Saturday Morning, um, which is, again, a nonprofit, very focused on um uh, you know, causes related around black and African-American um, struggles um, is going to be um, better for them um, because of who we're affiliated with, who we can pull in, what Saturday morning represents uh, as a brand for them and press and PR, you know, panels, things like that. Uh, it's best coming from Saturday morning. You know, Cartwright, we're, we're an advertising agency that just so happens to be founded by an African-American. Yeah. And you are one of the few black agency owners in this industry, unfortunately. 
Um, you know, we talked a little bit about how that makes you think about DE&I at your own agency, but how does it shape the way that you, um, you know, approach being a leader in this business? Um, you know, it, it, I, I have been, uh, you know, I've, I've been again in this business for a while and I, as when I was coming up, I intentionally tried not to think about what it meant to be black in this business. It was good for me to not constantly be thinking about it. I went into every room, certainly as a young creative, thinking that I was like everyone else and not pushing my point of view because I felt like I was just as good, if not better than everyone else. And, you know, it's not until recently that I've realized, or I say recently, maybe in the past seven or eight years, that I've realized that A, it is a problem. B, something needs to be done in order to communicate, which is one of the reasons why Saturday morning exists, that this is a problem and we need more representation. Um, and, and, and so, you know, lastly, I, I have been way more vocal about it and will continue to be more vocal about it um, because I understand my positioning in the industry and what it means to a lot of specifically black people uh, seeing me in a, in a founding role uh, running a company. So, but I also um, don't try to um, operate every single time I'm in a meeting with that in mind, because I do think we are just as good, if not better, than any agency that we go up against. And it's not because I'm a black founder, right? Right. Um, and I, so I, I, wanna, I wanna always make sure that anyone who works with us or anyone we work with, you know, understands, you know, look, and when they see me on the Zoom, it's pretty obvious. Um, you know, where I came from and how important my culture is to me. But that I don't want to be relegated to that. I never want to be relegated to that because I think we have so much more to offer. Right. For sure. It's it's almost it's kind of like a tough a tough balancing act, right? Because you want to sort of be proud about um who you are and where you came from while at the same time being like, you know, we're an advertising agency, we deserve to be in this pitch just as much as anyone else, um, right. not because of who I am. Right. That's right. Yeah, that's right. And, and you know, I, the way I look at it is we are a modern advertising. It's just like, yeah. it's not, it is not about, um, you know, I, again, I, 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 the importance of diversity to me is such a no brainer in business. Yep. Right. So, I shouldn't have to wave the flag um, to, to clients to say, hey, come look at us because we're going to give you the broadest perspective mm -hmm. on your business based on experiences. Um, and maybe I should do more of that. Um, I guess I do when we, when we get to the work because they're going to see all these different types of people. But um, I, you know, I, I all, like I did when I was younger, I walk into these rooms and I, I try to let the proof be in the output. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. 
Um, so the industry made a lot of promises last year about mm -hmm. diversity. Um, you know, I don't think we're quite ready to evaluate how well people have done yet, but we are getting to the point where it's been almost a year since um, George Floyd was, was killed and uh, protests ensued across the country. Um, you know, how have you felt like the industry has has stepped up in the past year and, and what more still needs to happen? Um, you know, I think the industry made a good push. Um, but I don't think, you know, it's, it's about data, right? Mm -hmm. And the numbers aren't really moving in the way that I hope they would. Um, I think the women's movement did a better job of forcing the art industry to make changes. And I think there's real, there's real evidence in those numbers. They're still not great, but they're way better than they were five, 10 years ago. I don't see the data yet that I'd hope to see in the form of uh, black leadership in our business and representation. Um, so, you know, now that things have calmed, as they always do, um, it, it, it doesn't seem like it's as much a priority as it was, obviously, during the protests. Mm -hmm. But what I do know is that every summer, guaranteed, there's going to be another incident. And we're going to find ourselves as an industry again, scrambling, trying and figure out what to do and what to say instead of taking the time now to implement real change so that when that moment comes up, there's representation who can speak on behalf of our community, right? Mm -hmm. So that, that to me is, um, it's the constant cycle. You know, this isn't the first time that we've, we've had these conversations. Um, and I don't, unfortunately, I don't think it'll be the last. Mm. So there's no hope really that this time will be different. I, you know, again, it's the numbers don't lie. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like, I, I think people have been in on social and, you know, and talking about it and in, in conferences. And I think a lot of, um, you know, the funny thing is I think our clients do better than we do. Hmm. I think our clients are doing a better job than we are. And that should be embarrassing for us as a as an industry that our clients are making more resonant change than than our industry is and so that that you know and it, it will probably take you know in the way that it took um you know for for business to make real change it required the um the, the marketplace to force them to do it. Right. Right. And forced them to pay attention to all different walks of life or they would just get protested and boycotted. And I think it's probably going to require our clients to do the same thing in order for us to really stand up and make a difference hmm. in how we hire and, and how we have representation within the walls of our companies and agencies. Yeah. Well, let's hope it doesn't come to that, but um, that's, that's very, 
possible, I think. Yeah. Um, so just zooming out a little bit, because we're, we're coming up on our time here, but what do you see, um, what are you excited about in the coming year for, for Cartwright and for Saturday morning? Do you have any interesting work coming down the pike or, mm-hmm. um, you know, what are you sort of uh, thinking about? Yeah. Well, I mean, we've just won a, a big piece of business, which I can't yet talk about, unfortunately. But <laughs> I know, I know. But uh, we're super excited about about that. Um, we're about to launch a global campaign um, for Hagen Doss, which is really exciting. Um, there's, you know, we just launched some work for Adidas, and we're about to launch um, another another big piece for them, which is super exciting. Um, you know, a lot of a lot of exciting stuff is going on. We um, we have a lot of new client engagement that's happened in the past few weeks that um, we'll work on. A, Tony and I are working on some press releases for. So it's 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 an exciting time. Things are moving really really fast. Um, we're only in March, so I, I see us having um, you know an incredible year uh, if things keep up the way they are. Awesome. Well, I am looking forward to hearing about this new client and hearing, seeing some of the new work you put out. But um, until then, I think we can leave it there. Thank you so much for joining us, Keith. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. That's all the time we have this week. Thanks for tuning in to Campaign Chemistry, and we'll see you next time. 